I'm so pleased to have the privilege of sharing with you this morning. Um, yeah, we had a blast in the first service, and so hopefully it'll all come to pass again. But um, before I get into my message, I just want to uh, make a little announcement. On Friday, uh, there was a young adult gathering right here um, in this room. And we had about 50 or so gathered, and we just we pressed into the Lord, and we, we just we believed that he was going to come. And we were really following through on a few prophetic words that had been had, and one of them notably by a, a prophet by the name of Bobby Connor, and he said that there would be Friday night live worship services here in this building, and that the crowds would come, and we wouldn't be able to fit everyone in, and the nature of the meetings would be that, that this would be an oasis for the region an oasis for the region, and that there would be a burn-up, and that the gatherings would come. And, um, and so we just, as a community, as a leadership team, just obedient to that word, looking for a time to fulfill that, and partnering with words that would say that this generation, 18 to 30, is just one of the primary vessels through which God wants to use and work through in order to bring about his work and his mission to the nation. And so we're just, we're just coming together, and we're, just, we're beginning to meet once a month, and so I say that just as a, if you're in here and you're 18 to 30 and, um, and you weren't there on Friday, I just want to throw that out there and say, make sure to come along. We're going to be meeting once a month, and that's going to be powerful. Uh, I believe God, God spoke to us on Friday just before we begin out of Ecclesiastes chapter 8, uh, verse 2, which says, do not be in a hurry to leave the presence of the king. And... We just, that's just what it was like for like two hours and more. We just, we just gathered around in devotion to the king and with an expectation that he was going to come and do something that only he can do. Amen. Um, all right. We're in a series as a church and we have been since the beginning of the year about being transformers. That we are, that we are in a season where we believe God is speaking to us about our primary purpose as a local church to be the agent of transformation, not just to our city, but to the wider region and ultimately to the nation, to the world. That we have a mission statement that says that we are, that we exist so that the world might encounter God's life transforming presence. And so as Catch the Fire, we are pursuing that with diligence. And from, so from the beginning of the year, Catch the Fire Raleigh, this community, we've been going through a series of teachings if you remember, we, talk, we went through the life of Joseph and how God used him to bring about transformation in Egypt into the land and to his people. We spoke about Esther being a transformer and a liberator for her people. And we're going to be talking about Daniel, the transformer, again, for his people who are in bondage. But for the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at Jesus, the transformer. Jesus, the transformer. And we'll be talking about how Jesus will be our returning king. Jesus is our ruler. Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus is our reconciler. But today we're going to say that Jesus is our redeemer. And so we're going to preach this morning about Jesus the redeemer. Um, and I'll start with Ephesians 1 verse 7 and it says this. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. 
And so this word redemption, this word redeem, it's a concept that's scattered throughout the New Testament, but really it's something which is so prominent throughout the Old. In fact, you could say that throughout all of Scripture, the common theme and the golden thread that is woven from the beginning to the end is that God has a redemption plan for his creation. And that from the beginning it all started well and in paradise, Adam in his his freedom made a choice that would ultimately cause all of humanity and creation to go off center. And so humanity itself was in need of redemption. And God being gracious had from the very beginning a redemption plan. And that redemption plan we see truly begins when he begins to visit in the desert a couple by the name of Abraham and Sarah. And of course, Abraham, who was called Abram before the encounter, simply means father, but his name was changed to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. Because in the interaction between God and Abraham, he lays out a plan that through the seed of Abraham, redemption would come to all of humanity. And I don't know if Abraham fully understood that through his body, which was dead and old and broken and did not work, and it was the same with his wife Sarah, that through their dead and old bodies, God would breathe life. And that life would become a seed, and that seed would persevere throughout generations and ultimately produce a redeemer. Abraham, when God finds him, is in a context in the ancient Near East of a patriarchal society. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into the nature of that society because when we do, I think we'll get into touch with and really capture the depth of what this word redemption means. That in Abraham's time and culture in the ancient Near East, they lived in a patriarchal society, which meant this. The father was the head of the household. And all resources that belonged to his family would come through him and it was his responsibility to feed and to clothe and to provide for all of his family. Not only that, if anything went wrong, it would be the responsibility of the father to make it right. And so we have multiple instances and they're laid out in the book of Leviticus and other things and other texts where we have these circumstances, potential circumstances which God has instruction for if anything was to go wrong. One of them is, if there's a member of your family and household that gets captured by an enemy, then it is the responsibility of the father to avenge that captive. If he is murdered, you're to avenge that murder. I know the Avengers came out. I've not seen it, so no spoilers. But it's like I'm not as excited as I thought I was going to be because I've been, I've been eating of this word all week about God being the Avenger, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not bothered about that movie. I've got a far greater Avenger from heaven who has redeemed not just the world from Thanos, but anyway... it would be the responsibility of the father to go out and avenge the death and the captivity of a family member if there was a member of family who through circumstances either by their own foolish choices or through choices not of their own had fell into ill repute and to fell into poverty and to fell in destitution and they found themselves in slavery because they could not pay a debt then there would be a redemption price placed upon the head of that individual and the responsibility to pay that redemption price to take back the captive fell upon the father's shoulders 
that he would use his resources and that he would go out and he would find the, the family member who was now in slavery and he would do everything and he would pay every price in order to redeem that family member. Wow. The father would be responsible for doing everything that is required to go out and to find family members who were once part of the household, but they were now marginalized for whatever reason, the responsibility to go and rescue them, to go and redeem them, to go and receive them, fell upon the father's shoulders. That's redemption. That's redemption. And when he would go out and when he would redeem, he would bring them back into the father's household. That's the imagery of redemption. The imagery of redemption is a father who will use all of his capacity and wealth and resources to go out and redeem and bring back lost family members into the household of the father. Can we see already where this is heading? There's a few incidents in the Old Testament. Uh, the most notable, there's a few notable ones, but um, remember, when, remember when Abraham raises an army to go after Lot? Because Lot, Lot finds himself captive by an enemy. And so Abraham raises an army to go and avenge the enemy, not knowing if he's been murdered or not. Abraham, by his own resources, raises an army to go get Lot. It's not just because he loves his nephew. We don't know if he does. He was a bit of a rascal, to be fair. He probably didn't like him. But he had this deep sense of conviction that came from the traditions and the customs and the laws of his people that said, it is my responsibility to go out and rescue him. I'm thinking about Hosea. And God comes to the prophet. And ultimately we find out it is a, it is a prophetic picture that is unfolding about the nature of God. But what happens with Hosea is God comes to the prophet and he says, I want you to go and find a wife uh, from the marketplace who is selling herself. It's a woman who um, has fallen into ill repute and she's prostituting her body that she might feed herself. And if I didn't say it already, remember, a patriarchal society says that all of the responsibility for feeding and clothing and providing rests upon the father. So what would happen is if, the, if a woman was without a husband who had died, then she would be left to her own devices to provide for herself. And often or not, more often than not, you could find yourself selling your body. And so Hosea finds Goma, and he, um, he takes her to be his bride, right? And remember, he brings her home into the father's house. And so now she has covering, and now she has provision. And it says that she bore him three sons, but it got to the day where she decided that her old life was more attractive than her current life. And so she leaves the covering of the father's house and she goes back to the street. And now what, you see her life was bad before, she went into redemption, but now she leaves that and it ends up being very, it ends up being worse than it ever was. Because now she is so destitute that she's sold into slavery. And so what does God tell Hosea to do? He tells him to go and find his bride and pay the ransom price that she might be redeemed back into the house of the father. Powerful imagery, powerful stories.
But you know what? My favorite one is Ruth and Boaz. And that's actually the story that I want to read from this morning. And um, it's only four chapters long. Uh, it's, it's such a powerful story. It's, it's just, it's, it's loaded. It's, it's written like a story. It's, it's not necessarily theologically deep or has many theological concepts in it, but it's, it tells like a story and it reads like a romance novel. It reads like a tragedy. It tells of the depths of just relationship and covenant and walking with another. It talks about just the trials of life and the things that can come upon us unexpectedly. And it's only four chapters, but it's so rich and loaded. I'm going to start from the beginning. I'm probably going to paraphrase it. So I'll, I'll read from the beginning. I'll read from the end. But in between, I'm just going to flow. Is that all right? Uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. And they were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. I just want to dig a little bit deep into the starting context of this story. It says that they were Israelites from, from Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. And in the house of bread, there was a famine. And so they experienced the circumstances of being restricted and pressed, even in the land of their inheritance, to the degree that they feel like they must leave the land of promise and head to a land which is far away. If you didn't know already, Moabites, the Moabites, are a tribe that came about through Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. Lot slept with his daughter and she gave birth to a son named Moab. Moab became a tribe and that tribe is the land which is mentioned here. So we have, we have people, we have Israelites living in the land of promise in the house of bread who feel the circumstances so tightly around them that they feel desperate enough to go to a pagan Gentile land in order to find respite. I couldn't help but think, that often we can be in situations and circumstances as the people of God where we do, we perceive a famine and we perceive lack and we perceive something is missing from our life. So we feel that there is a grass that is greener on the other side and we feel tempted to leave and to pursue the relief and the respite for the famine that we feel currently. But what we'll see later is that the famine that we experience temporarily is often not as great as the tragedy that will come if we leave the place of promise. And if they had just, if they had just trusted, and if they had just stayed in the house of bread. You see, Jesus says something like, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But they decide to leave, and so they go into Moab, and it says... Um, they're not there very long, and the two sons find for themselves Moabite wives. And I can't imagine that they planned to be there for very long. I imagine in their own hearts it was meant to be temporary. But the boys find Moabite wives, and then it says shortly after, Elimelech, the husband, dies, leaving Naomi widowed, and now she has the two sons and the two daughter-in-laws. But before long, within a decade of them being there, she now lose both of her sons to death. 
And so we have a mother-in-law, Naomi, and we have Ruth and Orpah, her daughter-in-laws, and they're all uh, bonded together through loss and grief and heartache. And Naomi begins to, Naomi begins to process just how desperate her condition is. Now remember, this is a patriarchal society, which means what? Without a husband, without the firstborn son, without the man, without the older brother, without a male, without a patriarch in your life, you're left to fend for yourself. And so Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws are literally left nothing in destitution, completely hopeless, common to now fellowshipping together of just around pain and heartache and grief. And in the end, Naomi says, I got to go home. I, I, th this land reminds me too much of the heartache and I think God's left me and I think God's punished me and I think God's curse is upon me and I don't know why and I can't make sense of things, but I got to get out of here. I got to return home and I don't even know what's there, but at least I have to try. And so she turns to her daughter-in-laws and she says, you just stay here. I'm gone. I'm done. I've reached my end. I got to leave. And so they begin to cry and they begin to weep together. And then they begin to say, no, 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 don't leave us. Because there was something about Naomi that now these two daughters were bonded to. Like, if Naomi was struggling, then they too were even more struggling. Left completely destitute. If Naomi, our mother, goes, what will that mean for us? And Naomi says, I have nothing for you. I have no sons. And even if I was to marry again, by the time my sons are old enough to marry, you're not going to wait around for them. She says, she pleads, she says, please go back to your people. Go back to Moab. And so we see Orpah uh, immediately. She puts up no fight, to be fair. She weeps and she says, okay, I'll do what you commanded me to be. And we don't hear anything else of Orpah. But, but Ruth, we see, begins to interact with Naomi. And she says this. She says, please don't send me away. She says, my people... She said, your people will be my people. Your land will be my land. Your God will be my God. And then it says that she committed to cling to Naomi. And that word cling is the same word that is used in Genesis 1 when God commands Adam to leave his parents and to be cleaved with his wife. This is marriage covenant language. And Ruth says, I have committed my life to bond with you at such a depth of level because I believe there is purpose in what God has done. I think Ruth might have even sensed something. I think there might have even been this, this prophetic indication of something is going to come out of this. And even though we're lost and even though we're broken and even though we're empty and even though we have nothing, I'm going I'm to bond my life to you because I believe something good is going to come to pass out of this. And so they return to Bethlehem and it says of Naomi that she makes this statement on entering into the city gates. Uh, she, says, she says, I left full, but I am returning empty. She left in a famine. And she did not know that she was full. Often, it's only in retrospect when we realize just how blessed we are. 
And it's not until the very thing that was a blessing to us is taken away that we fully realize that I was full and I thought I was empty, but now I'm truly empty. And the message there is be grateful for where you're at. Be grateful for the blessing. Count your blessing. Be grateful for what God has done. Because the enemy would have you believe that you're in lack and famine, but actually you're full. And so she returns back to Bethlehem. And again, I don't mean to repeat, but we're living in a patriarchal society. They have no means legally to provide for themselves. So part of the custom of the day was, um, and this is laid out in Leviticus and other places, was that if a, if a landowner has a harvest, when it comes to harvest time, he's to leave the corners of the field. So he's to harvest in a circle, but he's to leave the corners of his field for the widow and orphan. Because they have no means to provide for themselves, there, there will be a temporary provision for them when the wealthy landowner leaves the food at the side of the field so that anyone, including foreigners and aliens and strangers, may come back and feed. And so, uh, Naomi says, right, you're to go out and you're to, Naomi's too old to work the field, so she sends out her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She says, you're to go and find a field from which to glean from, to from which to winnow and bring back food for the household. So she goes out and she ends up stumbling across a field owned by a man named Boaz. And she has this brief introduction with him. And what she realizes is that this man is so kind and so generous and there's something about him and his countenance and the way that he inter interacts with her that he is, he is a righteous man, he is a rich man, but he has a countenance and a way with people that as she begins to interact with him, she realizes he is so generous and kind and benevolent. And she returns home, and I think it says something like, she returned home with, with uh, three handfuls of food, like it was a triple portion of that which she expected to get. And so she returns home, and, uh, and, and Naomi, the mother-in-law, said, where did you get all of this? Who has been so kind, who has so blessed you that you have come back in abundance? And so she begins to say, I met a man named Boaz. And it doesn't say this, but I imagine there's all types of awakenings going off in the heart of Naomi because Naomi knew that her dead husband's Elimelech had brothers by the name of Boaz. And knowing the customs of the day, all of a sudden, the plan began to be birthed in her heart that would say, if Boaz is alive, then our redemption is alive. And so she hatches this little plan and she sends her out the next day and she gives these instructions. And she says, Boaz is going to be out and he's going to be, uh, he's going to be gleaning in the field and then he's going to uh, rest and have some food and wine and then he's going to fall asleep in the field. And she says, you have to go out and she says, you're going to approach him secretly and privately and you're going to sleep at his feet. I don't know the connotations of that. But she gives specific instructions to approach Boaz. And when she does, this is what it says. That she startled him in the middle of the night. And when Boaz, when Boaz arose from sleep and saw the virgin at his feet, he began to say, Who are you, O daughter? To which she replies. She says, Master, would you spread your garment over me? For you are truly my kinsman redeemer. Remember, what is redemption? 
Redemption is the responsibility of a father to go out and look after those who were part of the family but have fell into destitution. Boaz, a brother of Elimelech, now had the responsibility to go and redeem his family by law to pay any price, to purchase whatever needed to be purchased, and to do whatever it was needed in order to redeem the family of his dead brother. And so she says, spread out your garment, and we'll get to it later, but it's more, it's, it's more than just she needed to be covered in the night. There was a covering that she so needed in her destitution that she required Boaz to do more than simply spread out the garment. And so Boaz responds, and He's a righteous man. He's a follower of the law. He knows exactly what he must do. So he goes into the city and he gathers the elders. And it actually turns out that he has an older brother who has first refusal over the land and the redemption and the responsibility to redeem the land and the family of their dead brother. And so they gather a council and the elders gather around. And Boaz basically presents the situation. And the older brother says, actually, I don't want any part of this. I don't want the land, I don't want Ruth, it's going to disrupt my family, I'm not ready for this. To which Boaz says, I will gladly fulfill my responsibility as a father and redeem the family and land of our dead brother. And so the story unfolds. And Boaz takes for himself Ruth, a Gentile, pagan, Moabite widow, who had nothing and was broken and was destitute. And now this rich and wealthy man of God who is fulfilling the law takes for himself a bride. And what's amazing is uh, right toward the very end, it says that they married and she became with child. And, And then it begins to lay out a genealogy. And actually, after you've read the story and you listen to what others have said about it, although the story is rich and powerful and deep and provined and so many themes and it's multi-layered, actually, some would say the only reason that the story is in the Bible is because of the genealogy that is written at the end. And what the genealogy says that Boaz gave birth to Obed, Obed gave birth to Jesse, and Jesse gave birth to David. David, the king of Israel, that would form the bloodline for Jesus. And so Boaz acts as a redeemer, but Jesus would be the fullness of that which Boaz was a shadow of. (laughs) That Jesus would be the ultimate redeemer. And remember I said at the beginning that God hatched the plan. Do you see how it all threads together? That nothing is there by accident, that nothing is there by coincidence. That every story, every image, every symbol, every allegory, The entire narrative is one of redemption. And in Ruth and Boaz, we see Boaz, the bridegroom, take a destitute widow to be his bride, who was but a shadow of a bridegroom who would come and take for himself a bride. That we were perhaps lost that we were perhaps broken and poverty-stricken and without hope. And Jesus is our bridegroom redeemer. Come on. Fast forward to the life of Jesus and in Luke 24, they're on the road to Emmaus. He's he's resurrected and, you know, it's... um, it says that two of the disciples were walking along the road 
and it says that they were downcast. And Jesus is kind of walking alongside them, and he sees that they're sad, and so he asks a question, why are you so downcast? What's going on? You know when Jesus asks questions, it's rhetorical, he knows exactly what's going on. He just wants to know what they're going to say. He said, why are you so downcast? And they begin to say, well, we've just been hanging with this guy, Jesus, and we thought he was going to redeem Israel. We thought he was going to be our redemption that has been promised from the beginning. But now it's been three days and now the women are saying that the body is gone and we don't know what's going to happen. And we're all downcast and it's sad and nothing's, we don't know what's going to happen and where will our hope come from. And, and this is Jesus' response. It says that Jesus, starting with Moses and the prophets, begin to expound the scriptures to them concerning all things regarding himself. Jesus, the Redeemer, answers their question of doubts of a Redeemer by saying, this is who I am. And I imagine he spoke, I imagine he told the story of Ruth and Boaz. I imagine he told the story of Hosea. I imagine he told the story of Abraham. I imagine he started right from the very beginning and said, all of this is me. And you don't need to worry about being redeemed. You're going to be redeemed because I've done everything that is required for your redemption. I've paid every price. I've avenged every enemy. I've conquered sin, death, and the grave. And I've done everything that is required to bring you into redemption. But this is the best thing. You think it's just about Israel. But it's more than that. See, they didn't even know that it wasn't just about one people in one land. It was about all of humanity and all of creation. You see, because when Adam fell, all of humanity fell. For we are all in Adam in our brokenness. And when Adam fell, everything that he was put in stewardship over fell with him. The earth, the land, the cosmos. And at the cross, Jesus, our Redeemer, has done everything that is necessary to bring us all back home to the Father's house. Come on. You can, you can clap. <laughs> I want to go back to that story in Ruth. You know the bit where she's laying at his feet and she says to him, would you, would you, would you spread your garment over me for you are my redeemer? Um, so the imagery, when you get into the Hebrew and there's, there's all types of symbolism and imagery there, what she, and some translations actually say this, what she's essentially saying is, would you extend your wings over my nakedness? And then we, and then you hear that and you think, wait a minute, didn't, didn't, didn't God say that we were to be sheltered under the shadow of his wing? Right? And then I thought about that and I thought, well, what is the ultimate what is the ultimate covering? Is it not Jesus extending his wings upon the tree? Under whose shadow we would have the ultimate covering. And Jesus is nailed to the cross. And in his final breath, he says these words. It is finished. What is finished? What is finished is that every single method and means by which we would attempt to cover our own shame, 
You see, when you go back into the garden, the first thing that they do when they fall, it says that they ran away and they were afraid and they began to hide. And then it says that Adam fashioned for themselves fig leaves. That the shame was so pronounced and profound and deep and immediate. You see, before they were naked and unashamed and now they felt so exposed that they went and they tried to construct a means by which they would be covered. And I think humanity has been fashioning for ourselves fig leaves ever since that moment. A false covering, a futile attempt to cover over our shame and our brokenness. Do we not wear masks? Do we not pretend? Are we not afraid that if people truly saw who I am and what's going on in the inside of me and what I truly think, would they really love me? Would they really accept me? And you know there's no place, and it shouldn't be this way, but there's no place like that than the church on a Sunday morning. That we can come in and all hell can be breaking loose, but we'll say, praise the Lord, yep, great, yep. <laughs> and we walk, and we, we walk with, we walk with the guys, we walk with armor, we walk with a fig leaf. You know, the law was the ultimate manifestation of a fig leaf. You see, because what the law did was it attempted to dress up on the outside all of the external cleansing. If you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, then you'll be covered. You'll be righteous. But when Jesus gets on the scene, he's having an interaction with the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and he says, oh, yeah, 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 you're just whitewashed tombs. You're whitewashed tombs. You're gleaming from the outside. And they were experts of the law. Jesus says, unless your righteousness of the law exceeds that of the Pharisees, then you have nothing. So here he was interacting with the people who were so expert at dressing up the outside. But he said, on the inside, you're dead men's bones. And I have come to redeem and to make a way so that the outside covering might be done away with. And I might then have a means by which I can clean you up on the inside. And actually, on the outside, you can still be dirty. You can still be broken. You can still be flawed. And you don't have to have shame or fear about revealing that brokenness to the world. Because on the inside, you've been redeemed. You've been cleansed. You've been taken care of. You've been avenged. You know, Facebook is just a fig leaf. So this week, as I've been meditating on this message, I thought, I'm, from now on, I'm calling Facebook Figbook. <laughs> Figbook. Because <laughs> you, you know what I'm doing. I don't even need to explain it. We present to the world, right? You ever going through and you're like, they don't look like that in real life. Their house is not that clean. I've been there. Those kids look so angelic. I've seen them play with my kids. They don't like... It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new means and a manifestation of something that has been there from the beginning. Something deep within the brokenness of humanity that wants to say, this is what I'm really like. But like Ruth, we know that we have a redeemer who lives. And that he 
has made every provision to be our covering. The Bible says that I am clothed in Christ Jesus. That I have a righteousness that is not my own, but has been provided for me as a free gift. Galatians 3, 13 says, For you have been redeemed from the curse of the law. Is that word again, redemption? See how common it is? You have been redeemed from your fig, I call it the fig leaf regime. You've been, you've been redeemed from the fig leaf regime. And then it says this, in order that you might receive the blessing of Abraham. <laughs> and the blessing of Abraham is the spirit that was promised. And so we're all in here together, but I imagine as I'm speaking, I'm, I imagine that we all now are becoming aware of the various different manifestations of the fig leaves that we have constructed for ourselves. It could be anything. Workaholism, perfection, control, lying, covering, pretending. And I think this morning, God wants us to truly get to the bottom of this revelation that Jesus Christ is my kinsman redeemer and he has done everything that is necessary for me to step into acceptance to the point where I can just be real with me and I can be real with God and I can be real with the world. Because I have one who says, you're my beloved in whom I am well pleased. I have one who has led me back to the Father's house. And in that house, everything that I need for life and godliness has been lavishly given to me and it's his good pleasure, the Bible says. And so if I could get um, the piano, could we get the piano? As I enter into some ministry time. I had an encounter in this room probably three years ago, whenever we moved into the building and John Arnott was here for the first time and he was ministering amongst us. And John had got finished ministering and I remember lines being all the way around the outside and then, he, and then he was just like, so the entire room formed a line around the chairs. It was amazing. And he went round and he ministered to everyone there. I remember clear as day, I was right back there in that corner. And he got to me and... Um, and I can't even remember him touching me. And I can't even remember falling down. But the next thing, I'm on the floor. And, and I begin to have a vision. And in the vision, I'm standing face to face with Jesus. And then as I, as I look a little bit closer, I begin to realize that I'm wearing a suit of armor. And then I see Jesus and I see that he's wearing um, a servant's tunic. And he says to me, Michael, would you take off your armor? And so, and so I begin to kind of reluctantly unfasten and unloosen and uncouple myself from this harm. And it was as if, it was a vision, but it was emotion wrapped up. And have you ever had that? We have an encounter with God and you see things within your imagination, but there's, there's just like your whole being is wrapped up in it. And as I was taking off my armor, I felt exposed. I felt vulnerable. I felt shameful. And as I began to unfasten and I began to strip of my armor, I began to see that there were all 
types of cuts and wounds and blood and dirt and grime. And, and I was skinny and I was emaciated. It was like I'd been, not been feeding and I was starving of everything that my body needed. And then I see him kneeling before me and he takes a cloth and he takes oil and he begins to clean me up. And I noticed in that moment that I'm actually having an encounter with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 because every time he wiped something clean from my body, the wound and the cut and the bruise began to appear on his. And as he cleansed me, he became dirty. And as he healed me, he became bruised. This is Jesus, the Redeemer. And he got done cleaning me up. And you know, I was naked and I wasn't ashamed, but it felt funny. It was as if I've been walking with armor on so long, I don't know how to walk without it. And then he just said this to me, Michael, would you not put that armor back on anymore? You see, because he desires to love us, he desires to relate to us, he desires to give everything to us. But one of the things that prevents the full blessing of God coming to us is when we construct for ourselves fig leaves and armor. Because we think that if people truly knew who I was, then they wouldn't love me. And so I wear armor to protect myself but it actually becomes a barrier to receiving the very thing that I truly need. And so we have a redeemer who would ask us to disrobe that he might clothe us. We have a redeemer who cleanses us. We have a redeemer who has avenged us. We have a suffering servant who would kneel before us and clean us and touch us and anoint us and make us whole. But sometimes we can't receive that if we're wearing our armor. And so I believe this morning, God would invite us to the front to disrobe of our armor, to disrobe of all of the things that we've constructed for ourselves in order to protect ourselves. And in return, receive the robe of righteousness that was purchased in his blood in response to enter into a divine exchange where I give him my trash in return I receive his treasure that I may give him all of my silly little fig leaves that I'm that which was a futile attempt to cover my shame when I give him all of that in return I receive him so if you would I'd like to invite you to come down to the front. And maybe to do that, you might need to shed a, fig, shed a fig leaf or two. Maybe you're concerned with what my people think. But I believe there is a moment whereby we enter in. And you know the place of entering in? The place of entering is at the foot of the cross. The place of entering in is the foot of the cross. The place of entering in is the foot of the cross that Jesus climbed upon and extended his wings to provide and cover for you.
And I have news for you. The foot of the cross is level ground. <laughs> what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that everyone is in the same need, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we are all in need of the one covering that is sufficient. So regardless of your zip code, regardless of where you're from, regardless of what type of trauma and pain, regardless of your prosperity, I don't care whose pastor's kid you are, whose president's kid you are, or whose prisoner's kid you are. At the foot of the cross is level ground because we are all in the same need for a redeemer. I also want to say, if you didn't get a chance earlier, if you want to be baptized this morning, there's no greater time than now. John's right here. If maybe you in that first service or that second service or that second altar call, there's been multiple chances this morning and maybe you've been sat there and maybe you wanted to go forward. Maybe you want to be baptized. Maybe you're just on the fringes and have not yet decided whether you want to go all in with God or not. The good news this morning that he has went all in for you and that perhaps if you would let go of your fig leaf and come down and step into the full redemption that is available in him. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. <laughs> what else is there except to say thank you? What else is there? I heard someone once say, you know, the only proper response to the gospel is gratitude. Requires nothing else. Requires none of your good works and righteousness. It simply requires gratitude. So Father, we pray that all of us, everyone here present, those who have come forward and those who are still seated, Father, that we will walk away this morning with a revelation that you are our Redeemer. That you have done everything that is necessary to bring us home, to cleanse us, to make us whole, to make us right. You've done everything that is necessary to give us a home. We thank you that you're a good father. Amen. Amen.